Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. I want to welcome you all here today. My name is Carol Hills. I'm a producer and reporter at PRI's The World, and I'm today's moderator. Today's program is one hour long, and it's a collaboration of the Forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and PRI's The World and WGBH. It, this event is also part of the Andalo series on current science controversies. We're going to talk about the need for open and honest conversations among doctors, patients, their family. Um, end of life is something that all of us will experience, and many of us have probably experienced the end of life of a loved one. It's an important topic, um, one that millions and millions of other people are going to deal with uh, in our country soon as the aging boomer population ages out. Um, we want to discuss the current setup, uh, why having these important conversations between uh, doctors and patients and families, why it's difficult to have them now across a variety of settings. We're also then going to talk about changes that are uh, underway that may make it uh, more possible to have these kind of conversations and uh, even getting to the healthcare economics of it, uh, changes that may be in the interest of hospitals and families. Um, we're going to take questions from our online studio audiences, and the questions for the panelists can be emailed to theforum at hsph.harvard.edu, or you can tweet them to at forum hsph using the hashtag docpatientconvos. You can also participate in a live chat discussion that's happening on the forum site right now. Today's panelists, starting from my immediate right, are Dr. Altul Kawanda. You probably know him as much from his New Yorker writing and his books as you do uh, from his, his healthcare career. He's a professor in both the Department of Health Policy and Management at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Department of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. And his latest book is uh, Being Mortal, which informed a lot of our discussion today. Susan Block is a pioneer, really, in palliative care in the United States. Uh, she's spent her 30-plus career writing dozens of articles about it, and she's had a huge influence on um, changing uh, end-of-life discussions, um, both locally, and she's developing ways for uh, across a variety of settings for hospitals and caregivers and families to have these important conversations earlier on during an illness or end-of-life. Um, Hayden Huskamp is a healthcare economist. She's here at, at Harvard Medical School, and she is one of her uh, several areas of research. One of them is looking at the um, the economics of healthcare and how it does or does not uh, make it possible to have these end of life conversations, and also looking at changes that are going on in uh, Medicare, Medicaid, um, managed care that may actually create a better environment for having these conversations. Now, I'm going to start off with um, Dr. Gawande, and he's going to set up a film clip. And he was, you probably saw the frontline documentary, Being Mortal, which takes us right into the office where these conversations are taking place. And, and sometimes it's very tough to watch. Um, but Dr. Gawande is going to set up that clip by talking about how he got interested in this topic to begin with. Yes, well, thank you, Carol. And thank you all. Um, so. This started in many ways. I, I opened the book saying that I learned a lot about a lot of things in medical school, but mortality really wasn't one of them. 
what I was interested in, of course, as a medical student and what I think our professors were trying to convey was how to understand the conditions that people face and then how we might be able to fix them or develop fixes to them. But we didn't think a lot about the unfixables and how we might manage them. Um, and I don't think I was necessarily all that interested. You know, I became a surgeon. I wanted to be the hero <laughs> to come in and save the day. Um, and yet, there's a couple things that have happened. One is that we've had this medicalization of mortality that's occurred over the last half century. In 1945, most people died in their homes. And I think it was in large part because you didn't think there was much that medicine would have to offer going to the hospital with um, many conditions. That changed over the next 50 years so that we have discovered a huge armamentarium of capabilities for virtually any condition to either reduce suffering or improve survival or both. Um, but the result was that by the 1990s, 83% of people died in institutions, most commonly a hospital, otherwise a nursing home. And uh, the remaining 17% probably would have been sent to the hospital if we'd gotten there fast enough or they weren't so isolated. So when I arrived in practice, what I found was I didn't feel very competent for uh, competent with knowing how to deal well with people who came with unfixable problems, chronic illness, frailty and debility of aging, and terminal illness. And yet I found that was a big, significant part of my practice. Um, we always have something more to offer. Your most common week that you will have surgery in your life is actually the, least, the last week of your life, which is the week where it's painful and you're going through a lot, but you haven't had a chance to even recover well enough to benefit from what you're going through. And what I want to know is how we might do better. So I did research, um, partly prompted by my own experiences as a doctor, but then also as a son of a dad who got diagnosed with a brainstem and spinal cord tumor that was not curable. Ended up talking to more than 200 patients and family members about their experiences with aging and disability and the end of life or serious illness. Talked to scores of experts, frontline uh, palliative care specialists, including Dr. Block, who was, is the chairman of um, palliative care at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, um, other palliative care experts, frontline nursing home workers, hospice workers, and others. And what they helped me understand was something I really hadn't grasped, which is that in medicine and uh, in society, we have failed to recognize that people have priorities to serve besides just survival, that people have fundamental things that they want to accomplish if time is short, or that they want to prioritize if their abilities are declining. The way to learn about them is to ask people, and we don't ask. We ask less than a third of the time. And part of what I really learned from Dr. Block was ways that began iterating on, began practicing at, to ask those questions, to ask instead of the way I really learned to do it, which is, here are your options. Do you want us to do something? Or do you want us to just do nothing? <laughs> instead of wondering, what, uh, what's your understanding of where you are with your illness? What are your fears and worries for the future? 
What are your goals if your health worsens? The filming was part of finishing the book in many ways, decided to bring it to PBS with the film and worked with a fantastic director named Tom Jennings. And he really embedded a whole team with a bunch of patients at the Dana-Farber and the Brigham Women's Hospital and followed them through their course of illness, including into these very difficult conversations. And I think what you get to see in the book and in the film and in our research experience is some of what that, um, how painful that is and how difficult and why we struggle with these conversations on all sides, patients, families, and doctors. And the clip you'll see is the story of, in brief, the story of Debbie Whittemore, Whitmore, who has to face exactly these conversations with her oncologist. Just that morning is where my brother-in-law and husband and kids were teaching me how to throw. I didn't know how to throw a ball. But I always think it's going to make the, you know, the kids happy to see this. In 2011, Debbie Whitmore was given a diagnosis of stage four colon cancer. The little ones didn't want to go, and I said, no, you know, I thought that's something that they would regret. When they're older, they'll probably say, you didn't make us go, you should have made us go, you know. Tyler and Josh, do you like pizza, right? Yeah. Okay, so you guys? Of course. You're gonna go outside, bud? All right, be good. A frontline team spent eight months filming patients at the end of life for the film Being Mortal. Oh, did you pull okay. Debbie Whitmore is one of those patients. Oncologist Jeff Meyerhart had been treating her for almost three years. She knows this is not a curable disease. And I think she set various goals at different times to be able to try to reach, but she's also realistic of where, you know, eventually the disease is gonna lead. The disease is worse, so today she will hear her next options. How are you feeling? <laughs> but always tired, like never good days really anymore. You know, that's one thing. She started a new chemotherapy now, two and a half weeks ago. But we knew she unfortunately had progression of disease elsewhere. And so there's three choices, right? So one is to stay with what you're on and see if it's going to help or not. Two is to switch treatment. Or three, as we talked about last time, you know, both, unfortunately, none of them are great choices. Right. And I'm not sure they're going to change the natural history of your disease. And right. so should we be doing anything? Right. The discussion is trying to get her to whatever quality of life we could get her to. As you get farther down lines of therapy, the likelihood of changing an outcome is less. What do you want to do? Um, I could do another treatment, like if you think that, you know... It, well, is that what you want to do? I think the important thing I think he's asking, though, is whether you mm -hmm. really want to do it. And right now, it's God only knows. Right. It, do you want to endure another treatment? That's what it comes down I'll to. I'll do it. I had to be true. I'll do it again. Do you need anything? No, I think it's okay. 
to me. I'm scared because I could find out that this isn't working. And then I have to like face, gosh, I'm really getting near the end. And all I could thinking when he was telling me that is, will I make it till Christmas? That was my thing. The hard part for Debbie is just the predictability of things and then learning how to live with that. So it becomes a struggle. At first you're holding back because you think, oh, you know, sickness is just around the corner so we shouldn't plan things and we realize that's totally wrong. As Debbie's condition worsens, the conversation changes from how to reverse the disease to how to fight for her best possible days with it. For Mark and Debbie, that means assuring time with their four kids. To think when I stop with treatments, what would I like to do with the kids? And I wrote, you know, I'd love to go to Disney. Yeah. And we planned the Disney trip. We, you know, tried to make, take advantage of special moments in time instead of feeling worried. Debbie's fondest wish now is to take a trip with her family to Disney World. Yeah, that's okay. We're not in that stage of thinking about what, what's the next best treatment to treat the tumors. Now it's more like what are the best things we can do to make her feel comfortable and reach the Disney World. That should be our number one goal is getting there and getting there in a way that you can enjoy it. I think an important concept for patients, it's not giving up by not doing cancer-directed therapies. It's changing the focus of your treatment, but you're still treating how you feel and trying to maximize quality of life is important to think about. Debbie takes treatment aimed to keep her strong for the trip, but she's hospitalized just days before. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Good, how are you? We're going through a week during radiation where she looks really sick, and then I wonder if she can even go to the park for an hour. Would you be happy just maybe staying at the resort and you know maybe having dinner with the kids when they come back? Mm -hmm. Or are you really expecting to be able to go to the parks and you know watch them on rides and stuff? And so right. those are- so we don't really know. Could be a legacy thing. Right, that maybe after, right after the funeral, they just all hop on a plane. But let's take one day at a time. Yeah. got out to the Magic Kingdom. We got to, you know, eat at the California Grill and watch the fireworks over Magic Kingdom. You know, we got quality time in it. Debbie got six days there, but had to return. She has signs of liver failure. We just had a wonderful vacation at Disney World. So we just met this goal. It was very difficult to go to Disney, but it was wonderful. It was a great experience, and I loved watching my children experience everything. But I can tell my body is not functioning well. We don't know how much time I have left, but it's very critical. This is life or death right now. My children came in, told them everything I want them to remember, knowing that tomorrow, and they realized too that I may not be clear in the mind again um, to, to speak to them and tell them everything I want to let them know. But this is the last stage. What do you want to do from this point forward? 
I hope to have some time on hospice if I could do hospice at home and have a fire and a fire in the fireplace. Something simple like that. I mean a lot. People say, did you ever say why me? I've never been angry. I just feel like this is the path I've been given and you just have to go with it. Can't crawl, crawl into a ball and cry because what, how's that gonna make any difference? So I do feel that everything's okay. powerful to watch that. It's hard to watch it, uh, but it, it gets to the very point we're trying to discuss today. I, I wanted to mention that that clip we just saw was an extra sequence that wasn't included in the Frontline documentary, uh, but the Being Mortal is streaming um, at Frontline website if you want to watch it, and I encourage you to if you haven't, because um, it really uh, brings this issue. It's, it's an amazing documentary, and it's the people involved, uh, like Debbie Whitmore, are amazing to have taken part in it. Um, I want to go to, to uh, Susan Block to um, to kind of mull over that clip. Um, Susan Block is, um, as I mentioned, she's really a pioneer in palliative care, and um, she runs a, a group called uh, an organization called the Serious Illness Care Program, which is really developing um, skills and uh, for how to teach doctors and caregivers to have these conversations. Um, and I wonder, in, with your background in palliative care, uh, how might that conversation between Debbie and Dr. Meyerhart, how might have, have been conducted in a palliative care setting? Um, I think no matter what setting this conversation would take place in, it's going to be a heartbreaking, sorrowful, difficult conversation and the most skilled clinician in the world can't make this easy or comfortable. And I think that's a really important starting place to recognize. Um, you know, over the years, I think palliative care, um, which is really, uh, the idea is that it's a form of specialized care for patients with serious illness, where the focus is really on supporting the best possible quality of life while living with their illness. Um, palliative care has grown as a field, um, and there are now um, more than 5,000 palliative care specialists in the United States taking care of patients in hospitals and clinics and uh, other settings. And um, I think that uh, the field has helped us learn a lot about best kind of communication practices. And I think that um, the kind of general principles that would come out of what we know from palliative care is that um, uh, patients um, uh, have different understandings of their illness. We saw with Debbie that she had an unbelievably kind of acute understanding of her illness. She knew where she was. She knew what she was up against. She wasn't 
you know, in a state where she was kind of pretending at all. Um, she was very self-aware, um, and she had agendas of her own um, and goals that were really important to you. And I think palliative care really focuses on beginning with the patient and his or her family. Um, and what's important in that context. Uh, and so I think that palliative care clinicians would be saying from the very beginning with stage four colon cancer, you know, we have a tough road ahead and we have some treatments that may be effective. We're gonna give you all the treatments that you think make sense to try to help you um, do as well as you can and live as long as you can with your illness. But we're also gonna be preparing for the possibility that things won't go as well as we hope. So there's this kind of foreshadowing and early preparation that begins before you know, a late conversation, such as the one that she had with the doctor um, on the tape. Um, I think that palliative care clinicians focus on you know, providing uh, on the importance of a relationship, a trusting, secure relationship with a clinician. And I think we saw that beautifully in this tape, that there was a good feeling between the patient, her husband, and the doctor in this tape that I think you know, contributed to her um, well-being. The, the focus would be on the patient's goals, on what's important to, hear, to her, to her family. And, what you see is that for m most patients at the end of life or with very serious illness, you know, they can't think about themselves without thinking about the people they love. And so her focus as um, it emerged here in the kind of conversation that, that um, was conducted um, really showed how important it was for her to get to Disneyland, to be with her family, um, and um, to, to focus on those goals. Because my goals would be different from your goals. Um, and, um, and in the context of her family with kids who she was thinking about memories and trying to create something for them, it was very, you couldn't take good care of her without focusing on these goals. Um, and I think then the, the other kind of conversation is about, um, and Atul was mentioning this, about you know, what are you worried about? Um, what, what are the things that concern you or make you most fearful about your illness? And clearly she was conveying that not being able to meet these goals was a, a huge concern for her and that she was willing to undertake a lot of hardship to meet these goals. And it allowed, this kind of information allowed the doctor with Debbie and her husband to really make a kind of amazing, beautiful, hard to pull off plan. If you were thinking about keep her safe, nobody would have sent her to Disneyland because, <laughs> um, but that wasn't the big value for her. That was not the most important. The most important thing was doing something for, um, uh, to help create memories and good experience for her family. And because he knew what those goals were, um, the doctor in this tape was able to facilitate um, a really wonderful event and opportunity for her. And then at the very end, when she wanted to come home with a fire in the fireplace, um, was able to make whatever adjustments in the medical plan were necessary to allow her to meet that goal. Generally in medicine, we think about focusing our treatment around the disease and the treatments for that disease. In palliative care, we think about focusing the treatments around the patient's priorities and goals and what will let them live as well as possible with their illness. 
I want to turn to Hayden Huskamp now. Um, these kind of conversations off involve time, and uh, many of us experience kind of short doctor visits and, and the whole way that healthcare is managed. I know you've researched these issues. Can you just briefly outline kind of what are the constraints in the system currently for having these conversations? And later on, we'll talk about things that might be changing. Sure. Um, you know, as is true for all types of healthcare services, the way that palliative and end-of-life care services are financed has a big impact on the care that people with advanced illness receive. And our healthcare financing system in the U.S. is not currently structured to encourage or support good conversations between clinicians and uh, patients and their family members that can help ensure that the care that's delivered for those individuals is consistent with their goals and preferences. And I want to highlight a couple of ways that I think that's true. First, fee-for-service payment, which is the predominant method of, of payment used by Medicare and most other payers in the U.S., under which providers are paid uh, per individual service that they deliver, encourages the delivery of more care and often more aggressive care than some people would like to have uh, as they approach death. And fee-for-service also provides no incentive to coordinate the care that patients are receiving. Second, our traditional payment systems create payment silos with one type of payment for acute hospital care, another for skilled nursing facilities, sort of post-acute care, another for hospice, and so on. And the silo approach leads to fragmentation in care delivery. And it can also create incentives for providing care that isn't consistent with patient uh, preferences and goals. Each type of provider is responsible just for their silo, and they're not encouraged to think globally under this kind of arrangement about the patient's overall needs or the cost or quality of their care as a whole. Third, our physician fee schedules generally undervalue tasks like discussing care preferences and goals, and uh, instead giving greater weight to things like procedures. Physicians can provide some palliative care consultations in the context of physician services financed by Medicare Part B, but these services are relatively poorly reimbursed. Uh, the 2015 Medicare fee-for-service pay, or excuse me, physician fee schedule included two new billing codes for advanced care planning discussions uh, in this most recent year, but these codes were not approved for payment by CMS. So the current fee schedule still does not reflect the time and the skill that's needed for a lot of these conversations. And then finally, I think another complicating factor for having these kinds of discussions is the eligibility criteria for the primary palliative care benefit for Medicare beneficiaries, which is the Medicare hospice benefit. To be eligible for hospice as a Medicare beneficiary, the individual has to have a prognosis of six months or less, and they also have to agree to forego potentially life-extending services or therapies. And ideally, the process of discussing uh, care preferences and goals would begin well before death and would involve multiple conversations over time. And it would also ideally, I think, offer the ability to offer different palliative care services that were appropriate for that particular phase of the illness, you know, as you went along, maybe adding more services as the person approached death and had, had different needs. Uh, but because of the reimbursement issues that I mentioned and the fact that there's no real package of services available to offer until the patient has a six-month prognosis and has agreed uh, to forego life-extending therapies, I think the default in many cases is waiting until weeks or unfortunately even days, often days before death, to have the conversation that could lead to hospice enrollment or to other types of care that the patient might prefer. I want to switch now to talk about what's, uh, what's on the horizon, uh, some positive things that are going on in the field uh, to, to make it more possible to have these important conversations and, and really think about the patient's needs and what they, their own goals are. 
Um, Susan, can you spend a couple minutes talking about the um, Serious Illness Care Program, how that is uh, the criteria you're setting up and the tools that you're setting up, and then we'll have uh, we'll talk about how it's being implemented. Great. So um, uh, I've been working as part of a team with a tool and a number of other um, uh, clinicians and staff um, on developing um, a, uh, a multi-component approach to addressing some of the problems that um, often arise in patients with serious illness around communication with their clinicians. Uh, and uh, beginning with a very kind of comprehensive kind of literature review and a lot of testing, trying to identify where do things go wrong, what doesn't happen. Um, we put together this um, intervention, this program, that has a number of different steps that's designed to kind of make sure that every patient um, has the right conversation at the right time with the person who knows their clinical situation best. So what we do initially is we, and this is a kind of a, sort of, it's growing in um, healthcare in general, um, which is called population management, identifying patients at high risk of a certain outcome, and then thinking about them as a whole group. So the first thing we try to do is identify the population of patients with serious illness. We have a very simple way of doing this, which is we ask the clinicians who take care of those patients on a regular basis, would you be surprised if this patient um, died in the next year? And if the clinician says, no, I wouldn't be surprised, that patient is in. Because clinicians are pretty decent at making judgments about this. Then we focus on training clinicians in a very um, uh, tightly scripted training program about how to use a structured seven-question conversation guide, um, similar to a checklist, but not really a checklist, um, uh, that, I, that, that asks the key questions that will be helpful in formulating a personalized treatment plan for the patient. Um, and these questions come out of palliative care clinicians' best practices. Um, and we try to distill them down to just seven questions that anybody could ask so that an oncologist could ask it or a cardiologist or a primary care physician. You don't need a palliative care doc like me to ask those questions. We then ask patients, um, uh, um, uh, we prepare patients by giving them some information um, about um, the fact that their doctor is going to have a conversation like this. We remind the doctor to have the conversation at an appropriate time in their disease trajectory pretty early compared to usual. And then we, um, uh, after the patient has the conversation, we give the patient materials to continue the conversation with their family member, and we document, document it very clearly in a findable place in the electronic health record. Um, and uh, so those are the general steps. The conversation is um, a pretty um, simple one in a lot of ways. We start with what does the patient understand about their illness? because we need to know where, where they're starting from in order to be able to kind of formulate um, an approach to supporting them. We ask them how much information they want to know about what's likely to be ahead, because not everybody wants to know all the information. We don't want to dump information on somebody who's not ready to hear it, but most people do want the information, so we can titrate it to what their wishes are. We share information about prognosis, and then we ask patients if time is getting so short, what are your most important goals? What are your fears and worries? Um, how much are you willing to go through for the possibility of gaining more time? Um, what um, uh, what um, 
qualities are so important to your quality of life that you wouldn't want to live without them? How involved do you want your family to be in your decision making about your future care? Um, these are all questions. They're not about medical treatments. Do you want to have CPR or do you want to have a breathing tube? They're about human questions um, that are very relevant to the patient and to their family member. And with that information and with our knowledge as clinicians as um, about the patient's medical situation, their treatment options, um, and their prognosis, we can create a kind of combined um, understanding and personalized treatment plan for that patient that really derives from the things that are important to them. Atul, you're, you're a surgeon. You've, you deal with patients every day, and you have a lot of these conversations, and you have over you know, a 20-plus year career. How do you see integrating these kind of conversations into uh, mainstream medicine? Um, you know, Susan said you know, it doesn't take a palliative care doctor. How, how do you see them from the front line incorporating this in? Yeah, I mean, I think this was the interesting part about what evolved in this partnership we've created in our laboratory, um, which is that I'm a complete novice walking into these conversations. And in a sense, Susan was helping teach me what would I do differently next week? And then also, we were both thinking about what should the system do differently next week? And what came out of it were, I think, a couple of things. One was that um, usually we kind of separate it, you know, that the palliative care specialist gets involved only when you send them the patient. But if there's only 5,000 palliative care doctors in the country, there are millions of patients who have serious illness or die, and we can't provide them to everybody. So distilling it down to you know, a few basic things that I could routinely ask in my clinic and knowing how to recognize who those people are started to put a system together. And then the second thing I thought which was really insightful was asking the palliative care doctors or um, the primary care leaders to look at the population as a whole and say it's not just the folks who come in to see the palliative care specialists that matter, it's the ones who didn't come in that might matter even more. And are we having these conversations? And part of the task that that group took on is for the Dana-Farber and the Brigham that they would measure and feed back to clinicians whether we're having these conversations or not. And the, one of the shocking results was that less than 30% of the time are we having these conversations before death and it's very late. So then, you know, we're able, it's been a process of incorporating this into practice and finding that you could make a scalable approach where we're doubling the number of conversations so far in the early days of this. Um, they've actually published a result showing that the patients who got the intervention have lower anxiety than the ones who are in the control group um, about their treatment. You know, the great concern out there is this going to be a death panel? Is the discussion that we're going to have about this, is this going to be all about just saying, you know, you're going to die and that I'm going to deprive you of treatments you really care about. And instead, people are feeling um, less anxiety, no increased depression. The studies of having palliative care conversations like these are that people, if anything, live longer. They, they stop their aggressive therapies before they're just pure toxicity with no benefit. They're more likely to do that. They have fewer days in the hospital, less likely to be in the ICU, longer time on hospice. And we think that means you're going to die sooner. And in fact, people live at least as long, and in this study, 25% longer for lung cancer patients. So, you know, what I come out of it thinking is that we're in the early stages on this research side, 
It's not something we described in the documentary, nor did I write about in the book, but in the laboratory I run called Ariadne Labs, which is a joint program of the Harvard Chan School and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. It's been creation of solutions for systems. And so we're now at the stage of having created some early successes, moving on to bring in two or three partner institutions around the country to, to give it a try to roll it out and see if we can demonstrate that it works. Hayden, how are the healthcare economics, uh, are they changing at all to accommodate these kinds of uh, systems that are being tried out? Um, I think there are a number of changes that, that are promising, uh, uh, have, that have potential. The move by Medicare and other payers toward the use of risk-based or global payment models under which provider organizations face financial risk for the total costs of the care that's delivered to their patients, not just for one silo. Uh, and they ha also face financial incentives to meet certain quality standards for the care of their patients has some potential to better support these kinds of conversations and to improve the quality of care that uh, individuals with advanced illness um, receive. I think the flexibility and the accountability inherent in these models um, and the incentives that they create to provide care that's both efficient and high quality could lead that these provider organizations to encourage the conversations to a greater extent and also help them to do a better job and encourage them to do a better job at coordinating care. But I think there are two main challenges that currently may be keeping this from happening in, in these early um, experiments with these models. Uh, first, many of these integrated models exclude hospice services or, or individuals who elect the hospice benefit. For example, under Medicare Advantage, which pays private managed care plans a capitated amount to cover all the care of their enrollees, once a, ben once a beneficiary elects the hospice benefit, they are removed basically to, to, to a large extent from that managed care plan and their, their, their care is primarily pay, paid for and managed or, or covered under the fee-for-service program. So they're no longer part of that integrated model with the exception of just the supplemental benefits that those Medicare Advantage plans might have been paying for, things like vision and dental care. Basically all their care reverts to fee-for-service. Um, this hospice benefit carve-out for Medicare Advantage creates an incentive for plans to encourage hospice enrollment among their higher cost in, uh, enrollees with advanced illness. And I think diminishes, at least to some extent, these plans' incentives to develop integrated palliative care networks that could provide good care for individuals with advanced illness in their population, both those who ultimately elect hospice and those who don't. Similarly, the new uh, duals demonstration program, which aims to integrate the financing of care for individuals who are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, uh, it also requires that enrollees um, either, they either don't cover hospice services, these state level programs, or once someone elects hospice, the, um, uh, they are removed from participating in the demonstration program. So I think in ending these carve-outs would encourage plans to integrate hospice and other palliative care services with the rest of the care they're delivering to individuals with advanced illness. Um, and ideally, you know, seamlessly incorporating palliative services into an individual's care plan in a way that's driven by the patient needs and preferences and not by a specific benefits eligibility requirements. Because I think for these integrated models to work and to really result in high quality care, hospice and palliative care services have to be part of the service package that's being bundled or integrated. And se the second challenge is that most contracts between payers and provider organizations for these kinds of models today don't include meaningful measures of quality of care that are relevant and appropriate for individuals with advanced illness. And for these models to really ensure that high quality care is being provided, we have to have good measures in the contracts to, to make sure the providers are accountable. Thank you. 
We want to open it up for questions now. Uh, we're going to go to our online audience. Thanks, Carol. Um, I'm going to try to group these questions because we have a lot coming in by uh, take some on different topics. Um, and there have been a couple around how this all fits in with assisted dying. So I'll take this from, this is from Dr. Brian Richard Joseph. He's commissioner of the Law Reform Commission of Nova Scotia. How do you advise assessing legal capacity where assisted dying is legal, as it is now in some U.S. states, some EU nations, and since February 6, 2015, all of Canada? So what's the question? I think the question on? is, it's focused on the legal capacity for assisted dying. Uh, I, I think how perhaps to determine the, the guidelines around assisted dying for patients. Well, I think they're referring to a very specific issue, which is that, um, for example, patients with Alzheimer's dementia may have wishes for how they're going to be cared for when they become demented, when you no longer, maybe you can't recognize the situation you're in or even people that you know. And you may say, look, at this point, um, I want assisted dying, or even just I, I don't want to be taken to a hospital under these circumstances. But then when you're in that situation, if you voice a different opinion, this is a very difficult question of whether you in that, in that situation have the, which, which person gets to hold here? Mm -hmm. The person who is uh, now sitting in front of you, are they, and with a diminished capacity, do you listen to them when they say things that suggest that they don't want what they committed to earlier? And it's a very, um, complex set of questions that pertains not just to assisted dying, but I'm not sure whether, you know, we've started to craft even ways to, to tackle these kinds of questions. There's separate issues which we can get into. Um, I'm, I have very mixed feelings about assisted dying itself, which we can talk about, but do you, do you have thoughts on this legal competence question? Well, and patients, um, can be rendered incompetent from dementia, from depression, um, or lack, can, be, can lack capacity because of dementia and depression and other neurologic conditions. So there are many things that can interfere here. And the key issue is really trying to um, understand what the patient's capacity is in the moment that they're making the final decision. You can't say in advance, I would like assisted suicide if I become demented, that none of the laws that I'm aware of allow that choice. And so you have to say it, I want it now. And if you lack capacity, you're not able to say it now. So it's a very, it's very complicated. And, um, and the, the important thing about assisted suicide is most people don't want assisted suicide, a suicide. And when we provide really great palliative care and give people a sense of control over their choices, they don't want it at all. And so that's what we're really kind of focused on. And, uh, and, and I think that that's a very kind of critical foundation um, for all patients to have access to that kind of care. Thank you for explaining that because there have been questions about the two issues being conflated. So thank you. Um, I'll take one more from online and then we can go. Um, is there a different approach to having these conversations with family members of a patient who is in an emergency situation or is suffering from a sudden illness? Are hospitals training clinicians to have these conversations with family members on the patient's behalf? Susan and I are smiling because at Ariadne Labs, we have a weekly research meeting, and our very last research meeting was from a 
trauma surgeon named Dr. Zara Cooper at the Brigham and Women's Hospital who was also trained in palliative care, really focusing in on the emergency situation. They represent a very special and difficult circumstance because you have no history with a person who's come in. And if they have not had these conversations in advance, you're trying to jam into an emergency situation a, um, a discussion of some bad news, a bad news conversation, an options conversation, a conversation about your goals and your understanding of where you are with your illness before this even happened. And so a classic case is that somebody who has a metastatic cancer or an advanced congestive heart failure may come in with side effects from their treatment which might require emergency surgery and it's situations that, that I've seen myself. And what the best practices in those situations are, how you handle it, what you, what you know is we should have had a conversation before this. <laughs> that is the absolute thing that you know. And what is the best possible outcome with that? You know, when you are in crisis, in fear, hard to process information, getting pain medication to deal with what you have, family trying to fly in and mobilize from wherever they're coming in from, it, uh, the most often that you can try to go for is that you've started the conversation. You've made a temporary decision that tries to align with what the person really aims for. And then you revisit that decision in 24 hours or less if necessary because you're trying to have a way that that time can unfold. The, um, the, the clear thing is, um, for example, we were talking to people who run assisted living facilities. In their assisted living facilities, the average age of the person in the assisted living facility was 83. They stayed, they were there on average 15 months before they um, uh, usually then had an event that put them in an emergency room. At that point, 50% of them either died or ended up needing to escalate to full 24-hour nursing care. And it comes as a surprise every time because no one has planned for it, even though they know this is a situation you're going to run into. Um, this is why I think what's powerful about this work is that it is very different from the assisted dying question. Once you realize we're not asking people what their priorities and goals are, it's not just for the very last weeks of life, it's the months and even years where you might, need, you might be facing debility and just need help with your care. And when you're up against a problem that you can't fix, that you cannot erase, that is going to become chronic or get worse, being able to have a approach that allows all of us to have that conversation about what's most, what matters most to you, I think was really powerful and important and is sort of the missing element before that emergency room visit. Thank you. Um, we'll take questions now from our studio audience. Um, I watched the Frontline special last night, wonderful. Um, but I noticed this was all with everyone that has access to very high quality medical care in general. And I was wondering if you could comment on some of the equity issues in the palliative care field. Um, and I realize globally that's sort of another can of worms, so I'll narrow it to the United States where um, we have somewhat better access to healthcare. Thank you. Do you want to go ahead? Oh, 
I can start and then I'm sure you have other things to say. I think there are huge inequity issues um, across the United States um, with um, hospitals, for example, in the South being much less likely to have palliative care programs and patients in certain parts of the country having very, very poor access to quality care, uh, to quality palliative care, excuse me. Um, and uh, so that's a major inequity um, to begin with. And I think that there are inequity issues um, around um, uh, access to hospice care as well as to other palliative care services in the hospital and the clinic and so on. Um, that there are issues around um, uh, communication that create disparities, um, that we think that somebody, that cultures, for example, you know, in, in African-American cultures, patients are much less likely to have advanced care um, uh, planning discussions respected. They don't get the care that they say that they want. They also want appear to want different things than um, white patients do in similar situations. So they tend to want more aggressive care in those situations. We can make the error of assuming that what white people want is the norm and black people should want what white people want in that situation. And we don't understand a lot of this, but we know that there are huge disparities and inequities in this, in this area across um, re related to poverty, related to region of the country, related to minority status. Um, um, and so on, and we have a, a huge amount of work to do in this area. And a lot of it gets mediated through the economic system, um, where um, access to, which is getting better with the um, uh, uh, what Obamacare, um, but we still have ways to go because we don't have as good of access as uh, Hayden was pointing out to the kind of um, array of palliative care services that patients need across the whole spectrum. Yeah, I think I, I don't have much to add to what Susan said. She did such a good job with that answer. But um, I think, you know, absolutely there's disparities. Um, regional, you know, even regional, lots of differences in access to um, uh, providers, uh, hospice, you know, the rural, urban, um, all sorts of differences. And, um, and also access, differences in access to some of these integrated care models that tend to be in larger, more urban areas as well. And so um, I think there's some real differences that we have to grapple with and try to figure out how to raise the bar more universally. Can I try reopening the can of worms you wanted to, <laughs> about global, global, the global problem? Um, you know, so one of the surprises to me is how eager people are in middle and low income parts of the world to um, engage and have this discussion as well, because everybody's experiencing the medical revolution, and we're seeing shifts in even very low income countries, in countries in Southern Africa and countries uh, like India, where the urban populations are shifting from majority dying at home to now majority dying in the hospital with very little palliation at the end. One of the big barriers that's observed, um, and I credit people like Felicia, Felicia Nall here, who is with the Harvard Medical School, um, with recognizing that there's a huge disparity in some of the very, very basics, like do you get pain medication? So narcotic pain medication, which is readily available in the United States, is not readily available in middle and low income countries. We, you know, so I have been, I guess, a visiting surgeon in India, for example, and we'll send people home with just Tylenol after major abdominal surgery, after major orthopedic surgery. And if you have terminal illness with a lot of pain, as you will experience, 
has seen people experience with HIV, with um, cancer care and other conditions, they're trying to get by with nothing. And there are real substantial opportunities to start to make improvements by just starting to close those gaps in access to um, basic pain medication. Are there countries that are way ahead of the U.S. on the use of palliative care, I I tools of palliative care? Well, um, I think that um, there are tools where palliative care is more widely, where access to palliative care is more widely available than in the United States. Um, the UK, many of the UK countries, um, that's the case. Scandinavia, that's the case. Um, uh, and but most of Western Europe, not so much, and most of the developing world, not very much at all. Um, places like Australia, um, Singapore, you know, relatively wealthy. Eastern countries, you know, have access to palliative care, but it's quite variable. I was really struck as I went around, including touring in the United Kingdom, that um, you know that the story can be very different. So they have the financial incentives in places like that that in, um, that encourage a more primary care-based and more um, palliative approach to the way that the doctors think and manage, but the level of services provided don't match what's here. So hospice availability, for example, in the UK, which founded hospice, is not all that available. It's not funded by the national health system there, and uh, and so there's only 5% of the population who end up getting hospice care. We used to be under 20%, but we're now at about half of patients who have hospice care in the United States by the time they come to the end of life. So we're used to thinking of the U.S. as unusually bad <laughs> at this problem. And I honestly don't think it's the case. I think there's a lot of interesting innovation, but also, more importantly, I think there's a real demand that's changed in the last five years for services towards the end of life. We don't get it soon enough, but we have it more widely, some of it more widely available. Um, and so it's a real mixed picture. Different countries have different missing aspects to this. Yeah. I think the other, another dimension is financial access to the services. So in this country, if you're over 65, the vast majority of folks will have financial, financial access to hospice through their Medicare coverage. If you're under 65, it's a very different story with a large proportion, still, still sizable proportion of people without insurance, whereas in other countries, you know, it's a different story. So. I'd like to point out one thing about this story that I think isn't recognized, which is that the spread of palliative care in the United States has been an amazing success story for culture change. And um, where, you know, 20, when I started in my career, there was no palliative care. Zero. It wasn't even a word. It wasn't even a word. In 1995, there were five palliative care programs in the United States in hospitals. And there has been a very systematic, you know, concerted, strategic plan to develop the field of palliative care in the United States. And I think that we are reaping the benefits of that success in education, in the availability of clinical services, in the quality of the research that is coming forward, and in innovation. And I think that that is something that is a really remarkable change that um, has occurred over the past 20 years. Another online question? Well, thank you for addressing those two because you answered two online questions <laughs> with those last few comments. Um, I know we want to have time for wrapping up uh, comments, so I, I won't take another question, but I just do want to encourage everyone to go online. There are a lot of questions, and there's a conversation going on there. Could we take one more studio question? If, if we have one, one more from the studio. Okay. 
Hi. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, I was just wondering, how are things different if the patient's a paediatric patient, for instance, um, say the under 10s? Uh, is the model the same in terms of end-of-life care and end-of-life wishes and that sort of thing, or do you have to deal with it very differently? Um, I think the model is very similar, and the pediatricians start out ahead because you can't avoid the family in pediatrics, as some adult <laughs> clinicians would rather do. And the family is a very integrated part of all pediatric decision making and very much involved in, um, in palliative care uh, for pediatric patients. But I think the same principles, the same challenges are there, and there is a growing um, United States and international pediatric palliative care children's movement that really began in many ways at Boston Children's Hospital. We're ending our program, but before we do, I'm going to ask each panelist to offer us a kind of takeaway policy recommendation. And these recommendations will be disseminated to policymakers. Uh, so why don't we start with you, Tool? Oh, gosh. Well, so part, part of it is that half the time when I talk to the policy folks, including folks in Congress, I want them to do nothing. <laughs> because my one fear is this gets politicized to the point of becoming the death panels debate again. I don't actually want them to do nothing. I mean, I think Hayden has started to outline, she'll probably hit on some things that we really can do around the financing to, you know, I think the most important thing happening is the move away from fee-for-service towards fee-for-value in care. And that as we become aware of really trying to focus on value, then you start asking, well, what is the value that you're looking for as a patient um, for your care? And then the result is that um, we start demanding more primary care, more palliative care, more geriatrics care, um, these very neglected fields, uh, undercompensated fields, and incredibly effective and powerful fields. Susan Paul. Um, I would say that I think that one of the biggest barriers to improving uh, serious illness care are, is physicians and that um, we need to have legislation that addresses and assures um, better physician training and training of people who can train physicians how to have good palliative care, how to provide good palliative care. So it's a train the trainer kind of idea as well as a train the physicians. Um, I would just emphasize, build on the, the points that Atul was making, that as Medicare and other payers move toward these more integrated models of delivery and financing of care, that again, that hospice and palliative care services are part of the bundle that are integrated, and that we make sure that there are good quality measures that are meaningful for patients um, with advanced illness in these contracts, both for performance incentives, but also for maybe for public reporting and quality monitoring to make sure that quality of care um, is, is sufficient. And then for individuals who receive care outside of these integrated models, we need to turn back to the, the decision, the 2015 decision, and, and revisit the idea of whether those co the codes for things like advanced care planning discussions should be reimbursed uh, and added for, for payment uh, to help facilitate the conversations. I want to thank our panelists today, and I want to thank our studio and online audience. It's a really rich topic, and I'm sure you may think of other questions when you leave, and I encourage you to continue the conversation on the forum website, forumhsph.org. Thank you so much for coming today. been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.